Welcome to the Young China Watchers podcast. My name is Sam Columby. Young China Watchers is a global network of young professionals. We organize talks by China experts in our 10 chapters around the world. Today, I'm speaking with a former head of our Beijing chapter, Julia Vu. Julia is now the research director of the China Cyber Policy Initiative, a research initiative within the US think tank Belfer Center. I wanted to talk to Julia about a paper she wrote recently, explaining how the newly found U.S. Development Finance Corporation can help the U.S. regain strategic advantage in telecommunications, especially in Africa. So Julia, let's set the scene here. What's happening in terms of strategic telecom investment in Africa? So I look at uh, U.S.-China relationships um, in cyberspace and, and often like when people think about cyber and cyberspace, it tends to be like the intangible internet um, and people often like basically perceive the internet as intangible and like amorphous but there is a really strong physical component to it and that is the infrastructure of the internet and there are like experts that have tried to kind of um, explain this infrastructure of the internet um, and there are several layers to it but the physical layer is the foundation is the base layer and it's also the one that is the most that was the least redundant so the internet as a network is redundant meaning there are lots of different available routes should one route be blocked um, but of all of the different layers of the internet the physical layer is the least redundant and therefore I think in in many ways quite quite vulnerable uh, I think a good way to um, visualize this is if you've ever looked at a global um, map of submarine cables around the world, um, telegeography.com is a particularly cool map. I really like maps. Um, uh, but this is a, a good way to basically look and see what the physical internet looks like just to understand the complexities and it's actually you can see which companies have provided this hardware where the different choke points are and in terms of geopolitics you can see that uh, the cables basically mirror a lot of the shipping routes so um you know where there are key like the the babel mandab strait um is like a key choke point of all these um, submarine submarine cables like as an example so it's quite clear when we're looking at these maps and this infrastructure where competitions and like influence uh, is changing and i think over the past few years china's influence over the physical internet infrastructure has increased. I mean, clearly the US is definitely still um, dominant, but I would say China's role is increasing, as should be expected of any country with that, with its kind of economic power and technological capability. But I, I think that it is something that if there is no concerted effort um, by the US and other allies um, that could become a problem in, in the future. I'm looking at telegeography.com here, and that's an amazing map of submarine cables in, the, in Africa. Very well done. So would you say this digital investment drive in Africa is part of Belt and Road? I know BRI is quite a vague concept in, in, in many ways, but would you define this as part of Belt and Road? Oh, yeah, sure. I talk a bit about Africa in the paper, but it's definitely, um, you know, throughout the global south. Um, and also, it's not new. It's in the Belt and Road white paper, like Digital Silk Road. It's one of the three strands. So when we're talking about the Digital Silk Road, are we talking about submarine cables or like the expansion of Huawei and ZTE in, in Africa? Is that also part of that Digital Silk Road? I would 
classify it as part of China's intention to enhance its influence in global technology and internet infrastructure. And if I had to tie it to one of China's policies, it would be the digital Silk Road, yes. So from the U.S. perspective, the U.S. has gotten its uh, its act together and created this DFC. Can you explain why there was a need for this new body and how this might help the U.S. regain strategic advantage in that field? You know, one of the reasons why um, China has been able to um, provide so much telecommunications equipment is for a lack of competition in these markets. And this has been because of the finance mechanisms that the Chinese government has provided for these companies. US and European telecommunications companies have, like, they generally approach it as through the lens of like economic and like commercial interests and uh, well, like many of these markets in the developing world are high risk and unstable and generally I would say like kind of a, a risky investment decision and also they haven't had the same kind of backing as China has provided for its telecommunications companies such as Huawei and ZTE. Um, you know there's many um, institutions such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Industrial Commercial Bank of China, the Silk Road Fund um, that have been mandated by the government to support like the Belt and Road Initiative. And within that, there is telecommunications. And so like China's development policy, I think, is quite sophisticated and has furthered its foreign policy in a way that I don't think the U.S. finance mechanisms did before. Uh, so in, in 2018, President Trump um, signed into law the BUILD Act, and the BUILD stands for Better Utilization of Investments Leading to Development. And this was basically a reorganization of existing U.S. institutions. So the USAID's Development Credit Authority and OPIC, uh, which stands for the Overseas Private Investment Corporation to make the DFC, which is now what it's called, the US International Development Finance Corporation. And the portfolio is about 60 billion, which is double what um, was available before. But it's yet to be seen like how this 60 billion is going to be allocated. Um, it also pales in comparison to the money that has been earmarked by presidency for the Belt and Road. But I think it, it shows that the US recognizes that it needs to do something if it's going to balance uh, Chinese influence in, in developing markets. Um, and it's not explicitly for telecommunications. The DFC is also going to invest in other areas such as energy and healthcare. But I think that this as a tool is going to be really quite important when it comes to leveling the playing field for other companies uh, in developing markets to compete and offer a, an alternative package to the Chinese package. So you're not a part of the DFC, right? You're an, an outsider looking in. But what is your read on the direction the DFC is taking? I understand it's a very slow process to get everything moving, but do you have an idea of what they're looking at strategically? Um, no, well, actually, so when I was thinking about this um, problem of influence over internet infrastructure and like the potential of what, what it would mean if China's um, influence increased a lot, I was thinking like, are there any tools that could help US and other companies compete with China in these markets. So that's how I came across the Build Act. And to be honest, it wasn't explicitly directed at the problem I was thinking about. But when I was thinking about what solutions could be 
this looked like it. And at the time that I was reading uh, the acts and stuff, technology just seemed to be, you know, one of six other sectors. But I think over the past year, as this US-China tech uh, discussion is increasingly, you know, getting hotter, um, I think that people are linking this build out more explicitly to providing uh, telecommunications infrastructure in developing markets. So I, I don't think it's explicit currently, but I think it, it seems quite obvious now that this is something um, that should be used for this purpose. You also host these cybersecurity meetings with, um, let me get this right, the China Institute for International Strategic Studies. Can you talk a little bit about what you're trying to achieve with that group and, and the most recent outcomes? Um, sure. So. It is a track two dialogue um, between the Belfer Centre and the China Institute of International Strategic Studies. Um, and a track two dialogue is uh, basically a discussion um, at the uh, think tank level on like bilateral relations. And there are a number of different um, track two dialogues covering different issues between institutions, uh, American and Chinese. Ours focuses specifically on US-China conflict prevention basically in cyberspace and trying to find or creating a space to have open and frank dialogue about really difficult issues and also to try and find areas where the US and China can collaborate um, uh, to stabilize cyberspace more broadly. And it, it's it will involve business because uh, business is a huge part of governing cyberspace. You can't really have a conversation without having businesses at the table. And uh, we've met three times so far, December, April and August. It's a two year project and uh, this summer we will be releasing uh, policy recommendations to both the US and Chinese government on a number of issues, one of which will be the digital Silk Road. I, I found it very interesting, obviously, because it's at a time where the US-China relationship is at a real low. It's very important to have these avenues of communication between both sides. Um, and a lot of other dialogues have been frozen. So I think that it's really important to maintain these uh, lines of communication. There's a lot of mistrust between the U.S. and China, and, and I assume also between U.S. and Chinese uh, think tanks. So what do, you, what do you do to create an atmosphere of cooperation? Yeah, well, inevitably, um, you know, we have the tough conversations. There are a huge number of issues that we don't agree on. There's also a lot of resources dedicated to those issues in other fora. So, for example, intellectual property theft is covered by a lot of other organizations. And so... You know, we mention it, we talk about it, but it's not the real focus of our conversations because we're trying to use this to find new areas of cooperation to build trust. Uh, so, for example, when we're thinking of the digital Silk Road, are there areas where U.S. companies can collaborate with Chinese companies in markets? Is there a benefit, and I think there would be, to just generally increase the quality of these projects and enhance the cybersecurity of the products that are provided to these markets and what, what would that look like? Another thing is, you know, that I think 
both sides could agree that the integrity and security of the international financial system is of huge importance to both sides. So what can the US and China do in this space uh, together to protect the financial system and also like you know is in terms of more broadly you can't talk about a global cyberspace governance without the US and China at the table so like and an bigger picture what would global governance of cyberspace look like can the US and China work together to control other bad actors in cyberspace there are there are a lot of other areas and so at the moment we're just trying to explore what is feasible and what is of interest to both sides and then you're planning to package these recommendations and hand them to US and Chinese government right are you hopeful that they'll be listening yeah i think there's huge appetite at the moment to understand both sides better and i think that they would be keen to know what is being said you know i'm sure that uh they would like to understand um these issues better who knows if they'll do anything about it when i was reading up on your background i saw that you feel you feel strongly about investing in long-term china expertise rather than ad hoc problem solving uh, can you talk about the suspicion that many long-term china scholars are currently facing in the US so i think there's definitely a need to invest in people that have this china expertise and kind of value in country experience um understanding the culture having the language skills like there are a lot of people now working on china policy that um incredibly influential who have no china experience who are applying a cold war lens to this or you know have developed their careers in the middle east and these lenses don't really work on china and from my time in china and like you know being in part of the young china watches there is huge talent out there so many young people with like fresh ideas who understand the country who could give real insight to governments academia and businesses um my personal experience as an ethnically chinese person who works on international security or who has worked for a government and a western government has been that sometimes i'm like treated with suspicion by like by some people um and i think that's quite sad i i think that you can't really develop a good long term china strategy or okay, like comprehensive china policy without having experts that understand the country and in order to have expertise you need to spend time in the country so we really need to be a bit more creative about how well particularly in governments and other sensitive areas um recruit they should be trying to find ways to keep people that have these skills to bring these people on board because it shouldn't be a disqualifying factor at all it should be seen as a, a valuable asset is there anything else you'd like to mention any advice for young china watchers i think it's really important to support other people who are building their careers in china like i first moved to china in 2011 to do an unpaid internship at the european union and um i didn't have any like support i didn't know anyone there i didn't actually speak mandarin at the time and i managed to get through because of the kindness of some people and um like i had to was very lucky with supervisors um and so that was one of the reasons why i was so interested in working with ycw on developing 
their mentorship program. Um, and I think like one of the great things and maybe one of the unique things about working in China, um, well, from my experience, is that there are a lot of people who are interested in understanding China better, working on uh, national policy, who are open to helping um, other younger people to develop their careers and have discussions, uh, really interesting discussions about like the most important challenges in global politics at the moment. Like I, for one, I'm always very happy to speak to anyone who is looking to develop their career and working on China, and particularly in cyber and technology policy. Understanding China is, it's, like a lifelong uh, <laughs> a lifelong task the more time you you spend like trying to understand china the more you realize that maybe you just don't know that much but then when you combine it with cyber um where most of us who study china tend to be you know social scientists and stuff and then there's this whole like cyber and technology element of it and, and you try to bring those two things together like that is a field that is going to be incredibly important like guys what i'm offering you is job security for life <laughs> but it's also really important that we have minds that can handle both I understand both of these things enough to make good policy. So I would really encourage people to move into this field. And I am more than happy to talk to anyone who is interested in doing that. Let's close off with some recommendations. What, what do you read to stay on top of recent developments in your field? And, uh, and who do you follow? I follow Jeff Ding on um, AI. He has a newsletter. Uh, the Digi China work uh, with by Graham Webster and uh, Sam Sack. This is also really great on this stuff, and the translations are super timely and provide great insight into what is going on. I also think is a, you know, there's a lot on China and cyber out there right now. Um, there are a lot of people writing on it who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> so it's really important to find people that have taken the time who can um, un understand the language, who understand how the Chinese government works and can actually draw useful insights from this stuff. Uh, UN at the Financial Times is excellent on China. Those are the people that I would um, recommend following. Many thanks to Julia Vu for making time for Young China Watchers. You can follow Julia on Twitter at Julia Vu, that's Vu with two O's, or find her most recent work on the website of the Belfer Center. For more information on Young China Watchers, have a look at our website on Facebook and connect with a chapter near you. My name is Sam Columby. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>